the lingering problem, the maintenance of an arbitrary division between literature and genre, the refusal to admit that every piece of fiction belongs to a genre or several genres. There are very real differences between science fiction and realistic fiction, between horror and fantasy, between romance and mystery. Differences in writing them, in reading them, in criticizing them. Vive les différences. They are what gives each genre its singular flavor and savor, its particular interest for the reader and the writer. But when the characteristics of a genre are controlled, systematized, and insisted upon by publishers or editors or critics, they become limitations rather than possibilities. Saleability, repeatability, expectability replace quality. A literary form be- degenerates into a formula. Hack writers get into the baloney factory production line. Hollywood devours and regurgitates the baloney, and the genre soon is judged by its lowest common denominator. Then we have the situation as it was from the 1940s to the turn of the century. Genre used to not as a useful descriptor, but as a negative judgment, a dismissal. So that's a quote from a conversation uh, uh, by the American writer Ursula K. Le Guin with another American writer, Michael Cunningham, back in 2016 for Electric Literature. And I'm John Fanning, and this is the Create with John Fanning podcast. How's it going out there? Hope you're all doing well, and that you're enjoying the winter or the summer. Uh, This is episode 22 of my series of episodes on the imagination or uh, creativity such, but based around my book, Create. And last time I spoke about keeping... The non-essential behind uh, what I call the bushes uh, and how it's important to remember or folk, that focus doesn't have to be an eight-hour workday. It can be as little as 15 minutes a day, as long as there are 15 focus minutes at nearly every day. So today I want to talk about um, focus from a different perspective or uh, the imagination from a different perspective, i.e. limits and limits and limitations and how something doesn't have to be generic because you are aware of genre so it remains useful as Le Guin called genre uh, a descriptor and not not um, a negative judgment or a dismissal so I suppose uh, a good way to get into this is to talk about a about 10 years ago, there was an American novelist that came to La Muse, our retreat in the south of France. For any of you guys um, that are just coming to this podcast on this episode, um, he was just starting out and he was pretty lost. Uh, the structure of his novel was driving him crazy. And uh, he asked me to help him. And it was a an historical novel. And he'd been researching for nine months all over the southern United States. And we, he was the research, and then the book that he thought he'd finished had just, you know, submerged him. 
and he was frustrated. So we talked about the main acts of his story and his flawed hero and a little bit about the stages of each act. And then I, I just got him to put it up on the wall, like visually. You know, Faulkner used to do the same thing. He'd actually write the outlines of his novels onto the wall, much to the dismay of his wife, to see the book, to, to look at it in a different way. And, you know, screenwriters do this when they beat out the acts of a screenplay by putting all the major scenes on cards and then onto a cork board or onto a wall. Uh, like, I'll never forget the first time I went into a screenwriter's room a week into a retreat, and literally the whole wall had post-its everywhere, each act in uh, different colours, of course. Um, anyway, I was listening to this American novelist and trying to figure out what he had so far, um, like what the ingredients of his genre uh, that he already had. And after about 15 minutes, he stopped talking. And I just basically asked him the question, like, where's your midpoint? And after a minute, uh, a moment, he said, I don't know. And then I just asked him a few, like, what's the incident that starts off your story or what's the catalyst as such and again after a few moments he said uh i've no idea really um he started talking about the beginning but it didn't seem that there was a moment that was the catalyst for the character to move forward anyway 30 minutes or about half an hour later um he realized that he thought what he thought it was a whole novel it was only half a novel and the ending and the beginning he had in his head was really only the mid... The ending itself was the midpoint, and then the beginning wasn't the beginning. And so, and instead of a heroine, he was going to evolve uh, throughout the story or the arc of it was uh, this kind of emotional crazy person. And that's his words at the end. And it was all in front of him on the wall, staring back at him on the post-its. The, the ingredients of his genre right there, the ingredients of, of the novel or the story. Uh, it wasn't on a computer screen uh, where he was like submerged by uh, the blue screen. So for the next three weeks, he changed it and edited it and added it to what was on the wall, which is another kind of ironic thing of when I was talking about walls and doors. You know, he literally used a wall to create um, a positive uh, turned it into a door by putting a post-its on it. So, you know, when he was leaving, he said, uh, um, he said, you know what the best thing about coming to this retreat was? And, uh, and of course, you know, I had to say, yeah, what? And uh, he said, limits. And better to know what bits were missing because of those limits. So uh, by banging on about this story, I'm basically trying to get at the idea of um, that if, if 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 everything is limitless, we can't really create, because creation needs form or forms. Like we can deform or conform or transform our creations or true our creations, but you still need form. You you need limits. You need a um, a foundation to the house of what you're about to create. So Shakespeare or not only wrote plays with stories but he also wrote in iambic pentameter so to read his plays you you'd think it's simply characters taking talking in you know in in beautiful prose but behind those words there's a very specific limits like each line is is 
couched in a in a five feeted poetic structure. So, you know, um, and you know, literature's my game. So I, you know, I'm using examples from it. Um, and if you if you look at poetry or the sonnet in particular, you can see this kind of idea. But um, it's not. But it, this does, this doesn't mean a creation's just maths. You know, it's not always maths. Um, you know, if we give uh, creation axiomatic interpretations and definitions, as in maths, it, it's it's like saying a sonnet is a sonnet only if it's a b a b a b etc. As in, uh, like a Petrarchan or an Italian sonnet. But this this would mean that you know Dante's creation of an um, uh, different, like an a a b a a b etc. Sonnet, it's not the true form, or that it's incorrect. And and if the sonnet had stayed uh, axiomatic, the, then we'd never have had the Occitan sonnet. Or the Shakespearean sonnet, or the or the English sonnet. Never mind the, you know, never mind the Urdu sonnet or the contemporary free verse sonnets. So there is, there are ingredients, but the, those ingredients don't have to be always followed. But you do have to know what a Petrarchan sonnet is at the beginning if you want to start creating your own one like Dante did, or Shakespeare, or and uh, the way the Urdus did before that again. But, um. So everything has limits, but a lot of limits are invisible too. Like with Shakespeare, um, poetry is a great example from sonnets, um, but not just sonnets, like villanelles, uh, with the structures and the, and the limits in the words and the lines. And this doesn't have to be in the world of literature. You know, a business plan starts with an introduction, a thesis, uh, an antithesis, and then a new thesis. Um a car, a car has an engine, wheels, seats. A screenplay has uh, an act one, its catalyst, and an act two, and a and a B story, and a midpoint, and and all is lost moment, and then your your finale, your third act. You know, and so th- these are all very specific limits, and you know the novels, the novels that I write, they have limits too, and specific novels have specific limits. Um, or ingredients like, um, like that American novelist historical novel, or like Le Guin was saying about genre. So, I suppose a good example would be something that a lot of people read uh, are detective fiction or detective novels, because they have very certain ingredients that we all kind of recognize, like an unusual detective and a femme fatale and some red red herrings, you know. And of course, a murder to be solved. So these are basic ingredients or basic limits. And it, you know, if you're talking about uh, ingredients, like I like to think of it like a recipe, like an omelet without eggs uh, is not an omelet. Uh, everyone knows um, what an omelet is. It has it has eggs. So it's, that's your basic limits when you're creating that food um, or that recipe. So you could call uh, like a, a cheese omelette, let's say, like a Sherlock Holmes novel or a detective novel. Uh, then there's a Western omelette like they have in the States here. Which it has different ingredients again. Say in a, uh, it's like a, you could say that's an Agatha Christie, who done it or why done it. Uh, 
which is a different kind of recipe. And then if you take that omelette and put it in the oven uh, with even more ingredients, then you have a frittata, uh, what they call it in, in Italy. Um, and, you know, uh, that's like a, your Italian detective novel, you know, your, your Leonardo Schiazia. Uh, but, you know, you get that uh, Italian one and you put a base under your frittata omelette and you get a quiche, uh, say, a, like a quiche Lorraine. And, you know, then you've got your French detective novel, like a May Gray, or uh, some other form of detective novel. There's, you know, you take the base and then, you know, it becomes a Raymond Chandler novel it's out in L.A., you know. So the point uh, is that uh, you start off with the basic ingredients, eggs or eggs and milk. And with a detective novel, you start off with a detective, your eggs, and then a murder, your milk. And not to beat this over the head, but, uh, you know, if you, it's a simple example, but it starts to, you can extrapolate it into all different forms of creation. And if you start, so if you start writing a detective novel without an unusual detective or without a murder, then you're creating something completely different. It's not an omelette. So you have to know your genre, even if it's only at a basic level. And if you're writing a, a horror movie, you better know the limits of that too, or the the basic invisible recipe of the genre before writing your own. And you can break those limits afterwards, but you have to know what they are um, to play with them. So what you add to it afterwards is up to you, uh, but you do have to have your basic limits. So I suppose what I'm trying to get at is that this applies to nearly... It just applies to every crea- nearly any creation. So you could start a business like we did with Lemuse, but how much easier it would have been if we had created with a recipe, like a business plan, with market research or a marketing campaign or financial projections, because it would have alleviated a lot of stress and we wouldn't have had to learn the hard way by making mistakes and having to pay the consequences, like literally over the years. Um, and it kind of, I'm reminded of an old classics lecturer of mine who used to talk about uh, the, what he called the Alexandrian idea of beads on a string. And I used to use this a lot. When someone would come on retreat to Lemuse, I'd, you know, whether it's like writing a book, a nonfiction or a memoir or a novel like that American novelist I was talking about writing a historical novel and if they were stuck and but they were also really resistant to talking about recipes or genres or or plans I usually just ended up talking to them about the beads on a string uh, again because it's very visual and oftentimes you know they've been writing their memoir for years and they were just stuck because they didn't know where it started or how it finished or or what to leave in or what to leave out and so they'd they had their voice and and all these key moments but they they didn't know how to organize it all and as opposed to talking about acts and beats and genre uh we talked or we'd talk about whether a passage about childhood would be a red bead or a chapter about being an adult what color bead would that be in the stages of the memoir so a paragraph about growing old and that'd be a different colored bead 
So you'd have these tree bay, like it's from a simplistic exp uh, um, example, you'd have the youth and adult and then old age and they're different colors. So if you keep interspersing them, it creates a, di a, a formed necklace as such at the end when you're strung together. So this way they engage with limits and genre without getting overwhelmed or um, what some of them would say is like overly technical or overly structured. So they'd start to see their own story visually, just like I just described Faulkner doing. And they realized they had to, they, they'd realized that they had too many beads, like too many of the red beads for childhood, let's say, or that some yellow beads are, are at the beginning when they should be in the middle or at the end. And eventually by the end of the process, they'd, they'd worked out how there are, their book should be constructed and how all the beads are shredded together to make, you know, this a beautifully symmetrical personal necklace. Like, like the, my, le my lecturer used to talk about Virgil's eclogues. He would see it as a perfectly symmetrical necklace. You could talk about Shakespeare's plays again in this act structure or, or the highs and lows and endings of a, of a Beethoven symphony. They're organized. They have their limits. They have their, their structure. And each time a play or a symphony is, was created by Shakespeare or Beethoven, uh, they, they did have limits, these forms. So, you know, your book or business or, or goal, it'll fail if it doesn't have a plan based on a recipe or a genre or or this, this beads on a string idea. Uh, it saves you so much time when you know the limits or the, the basic ingredients of your creation or whatever field it is you're trying to get into. And you don't have to get into the minutiae, but if you have limitless avenues, well, you just go down all of them. And that'd be exhausting. And But if you're focused, like the examples I gave in the last episode on focus, and learn one thing really well and change it or adapt it into your creation, then you, you'll get there a lot quicker. So everything has a structure or ingredients, uh, and you just have to know the structures of your of your field and know the limits of your field, but don't get bogged down in the numbers. Um, and numbers, that's that's something else. Which, it, that leads me to to another thing, numbers, basically. That, you know, some creators love numbers, but a lot get anxious and frustrated by numbers. And an example I used to hear at our retreat all the time was, uh, oh, I wrote my 3,000 words today. And, you know, this drives me crazy. I have enough numbers in my life without uh, stuffing consumerism into the creative part of my life. Um, this idea of words in numbers, just it's like basically I want my right side of my brain, the creative side, working. And the left side of my brain does enough work uh, during the day counting uh, the rest of the day like adding up bills and looking at the bank account or counting how many liters of milk we have left in the fridge like we all do so the only numbers I look at are the clock because every 20 minutes or so I get up and move the body and take off the glasses 
and write my vision again by by looking at the horizon instead of the, the blue screen. So when I'm working on a project away from the day job, uh, every three to four hours I'll eat or go for a long walk. And I get find I get diminishing returns if I stay seated for more than four hours. And so I find it harder to return to the desk. I just feel more tired the next day too. So you don't you just don't have the wherewithal then to get, get into work the next time or the next day so this way i know i've done my work irrespective of whether it's 10 words or ten thousand words and this relieves a lot of anxiety and so this is my process and everyone has to find their own and some people like word counts but not me i i think it creates stress unnecessary stress so what i think is more important is to is to know your time process some people work early in the morning like Auden. Others are limited to the night time, uh, like Dostoevsky. Um, so they work late at night. And some people can work eight hours a day writing and others one hour a day. So again, we're all different, but if we're consistent with our time and focused, then the numbers will not create walls of pressure and stress. So from my perspective, it's just for the most part just forget numbers uh, discover your time process instead and set yourself goals my goal is as i said like four hours a day when working on a new project sometimes this isn't possible of course because life can get in the way but i don't stress about it now i just wait and the new goal is to set my process up again when the move or the relationships or the change has tradition transitioned into into a more stable time as such and you know we have to have goals um i suppose benjamin franklin used to he was pretty good at that you know he used to set a goal for each day and at the end of the day he'd, he'd ask himself had he achieved it and if he hadn't he'd analyze why he hadn't achieved it and then the next day he would start all over again and you know he wasn't alone there's many other creative people who did the same thing Anything, anyone from a, an actor like Matthew McConaughey uh, uh, at the end of the day, looking back on what you did to see, did you stay on on track, you know, with your own limits? And and so another part of this is, is by forgetting numbers, I'm able to always be working on the next goal as such, not just the day goal, like the week goal or the weeks and months and then years so while one book or house or projects being created i'm already taking notes for the next ones which is something i'll get into in the next episode uh, notes and notebooks but you know grow goals can create as i was saying before focus and positive thoughts because as the years pass you see what you've achieved and again as with focus there has to be limits um, because there's some kind of a plan be, because no plan ever works out the way you want it to. But, but if you don't plan, then you'll, you'll never achieve any of your goals. And uh, a long-term goal is when you see far off into the horizon, everything you're doing today is a part of getting to that end target away from the limits of the reality around us. So it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like a game of soccer. You keep picking passes 
until one day at the end of the field you you score a goal. So, but the amount of goals you score is up to you, as well as fate, of course. Um, uh, but it's never a feat done in just one kick, you know, unless fate gives you a really lucky go uh, goal, you know. So it's about looking into the future and where you want to be uh, and setting those goals or that goal. Um, you know, again, you could assign this to time periods, like what age are you now, and then just add 10 years to it. Where do you want to be at that age after adding 10 years to the age you are right now? So how many books or paintings or clients do you want to have by then? So if you go now and then go out in years, so year one, two, and so on, and then this idea of like, oh, in five years, I'll have this done. And this is not me. This is this is not my idea. This is a time-worn idea, you know, of and all these very successful people have done the same thing, you know, from George Lucas, who I mentioned in the last episode, to Frank Gehry with his architecture, or Elon Musk with his his goals. So as opposed to season, seeing problems, the, these guys look for solutions to these goals. So... As I said before, Lucas had the question of how do how does he make special effects for Star Wars? Because there was no company that did that when he was doing it. So the solution was to create one. So he created the company, like I talked about before. Frank Gehry, he wanted to basically make buildings bend. But nobody else was doing it, so he says, how do I do it? So he use different materials in ingenious ways to create these beautiful forms out of the limits that he had. And, you know, Elon Musk, um, basic tenet of how do we get off fossil fuels? So he creates businesses that go towards that goal and makes them interrelated to su- by supplying um, transport and energy from houses by using the, the sun. Again being innovative with the goals that we assign ourselves. Um, and obviously these are big examples, but I'm just trying to look at the gross examples to understand the smaller ones I was just talking about from this kind of day-to-day thing. So, of course, none of these creations came out of thin air. They were planned, and these creators looked at the limits in their field and then changed those limits or changed their genre. Like they created long-term goals that were realized. So most people believe these creators would never achieve their goals, but with time, they did and defied the the naysayers as such. So basically, you know, because of time, that time means you have to be patient. And this idea of instant gratification from this kind of Instagram culture doesn't, it just doesn't exist um, because only moment to moment, uh, they're, they're, that's where the joy in creating comes from, in that moment to moment gratification, not uh, instant gratification of a, of, a, of a long-term goal. So you have to plan long-term but work short-term and appreciate in short-term on the understanding of the limits of of what you create to understand the basics so you can add or enhance the genre or the field that inspires you. So, 
Yeah, so that's basically what I wanted to talk about today, about limits and genre. And thanks for listening. And so I started with, uh, excuse me, uh, with, a, with a quote from an American writer, but as I always do, I'm uh, just going to end this one with um, an Irish proverb. This one literally means uh, practice makes mastery. I suppose that would be uh, in common parlance or uh, American English or English English practice makes perfect but then as I said in the previous episode no such thing as perfection really and so uh, practice makes ma- practice makes mastery so clatach a yenan on my strict clatach a yenan on my strict so this podcast is supported by you the listener uh, via the Patreon page and if you want to support it and you ju- can just go to patreon.com forward slash John Fanning and you can get extra episodes there. I'll be putting them into that as well. And if you can afford it, again, the usual cliche, cup of tea or a pint once a month, that'd be great. Pretend you're sitting in a bar talking to you and you want to support my my uh, talking at you more. <laughs> So if you can't afford, that's fine too. Just listen for free. That's all good. But um, at least try and write something on iTunes or like leave a review there or wherever it is that you listen to this. Or just tell a friend if you think there's an episode that's relevant. Just send it to them. Send them a link. And then there's also my website as well um, where you can get the Twitter stuff handle and the Instagram handle and all that. Um, so it's been great sharing with you uh today so until next time uh take care out there and try to understand limits and your limits and but above all be benevolent if you can or when you can so shlon live august gunari and boho live